Do you just love this podcast so much and wish you could find a way to monetarily support us? Well, guess what? Much like NPR, we thrive on support from viewers like you. So if you love this podcast and you want to become a contributor, all you have to do is go to anchor.fm. That's A-N-C-H-O-R.fm. Click the support button and choose the amount that you want to contribute each month to our podcast. This helps keep our podcast going and it keeps the phenomenal content that you have come to know and love flowing. So yeah, what are you waiting for? Sign up today. As always, thank you so much for being a listener. We appreciate you. We see you. And we hope you enjoy the show. Spoiler alert. If you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club, where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my entertaining friends to talk about classic movies or any other old-fashioned form of media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we're talking about the film My Favorite Year from 1982 with my wonderful guest, Andrew Apple. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me. I am your host, Sarah Greenfield, and today I have a wonderful guest, in person. It's our first in person since all of COVID. Um, Andrew Apple. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sarah. Very happy to be here. Thank you for like hosting this really cool event. We're using Andrew's gear instead of mine today. You may recall Andrew from our very first pilot episode. He helped, he produced that for us. I don't know that they would necessarily know me from that though, because I, I was completely behind the scenes on that one. We were like, Andrew, we need um, you to tell inflation. And you went on a calculator. You could like hear a whisper of Andrew in the background. That, that is correct. But also, I mean, that that was in the old times. Yes. Before COVID. Uh, this week we watched, my, I was going to say My Favorite Wife. That's not the movie <laughs> we watched. We watched My Favorite Year from 1982. How'd you feel about it? What'd you think? So this is one of my favorite movies of all time. And I was one of those weird people who came to it backwards because I knew the musical first. And then someone was like, yeah, it's based on this movie. It's like, I I must find this film. And then I find out, oh, this is about all of my heroes. So, yeah, there was nothing but good, happy vibes watching it, except for the fact that there were a couple of cringy things that didn't yeah. hold up. But I, I, we'll, we'll get to the cringy we'll to things that, that don't hold up for sure. So I chose this movie um, because, well, first of all, it's going to come out on Rosh Hashanah. So I was like, okay, great, like Jewish movie to put out on Rosh Hashanah. Mm-hmm. Um, but also I, I feel like when I very first saw this movie, I was so charmed by it. And um, I saw it, I think I saw it in high school uh, on TCM. They were showing it and they, they introduced it with like, you know, telling us who everybody was like, this is supposed to be Errol Flynn. This is supposed to be like Mel Brooks. This is supposed to be like Sid Caesar. And I, I really enjoyed it. But I, I will say this viewing because of all of the the things that don't hold up. It was harder to watch than it had been before. So it was like I still had a good time at the movies. I still enjoyed myself, but I, I kept getting kind of knocked out of it by all of the the stuff <laughs> borderline rapey all of it there were so many things yes benji for me this is it's so funny that we're talking about this because this is like what i expected going in we talked about errol flynn the last season right we did the adventures of robin hood we talked about what a creep errol flynn was in real life 
So I expected this viewing to go in and just not liking Alan Swan. Like I thought I was going to go in and being like, oh, gross, Peter O'Toole. But that's not what grossed me out. What grossed me out was what you just said. Benji's character is awful <laughs> in so many ways. <laughs> and it was hard. It was hard to watch, you know? Y- yes. And it made sense once I found out that the writer, in addition to basing a lot of it on Mel Brooks, Benji's character, was mostly based on Mel Brooks. But there was also a little bit of Woody Allen in there, which it's like... That's where the creepiness comes. I read that too, and I was like, oh, that makes a little bit more sense. And I I realize that I am obviously coming at this from the perspective of a cisgender heterosexual male. But in hindsight, I've... And let me just say, I can only say what I'm about to say because my wife has effectively like opened my eyes to how lousy cisgendered heterosexual men have acted over the years and how not to do it. But for a very long time, we as Jewish men were almost trained to approach women in that way. It's a very aggressive style of approaching women, but doing it in a way where just poking and poking and poking at the women, trying to wear her down to eventually go out with you. And like thinking back, you know, watching movies growing up like, you know, Manhattan and Annie Hall, that was just what was ingrained in us for so many years. And it it was not the right way to do you. things. It's like this idea that the woman doesn't know her own mind and that she's just saying no to encourage you. And if you wear her down enough, she's just bound to fall in love with you. And it's like, no, no means no. And sometimes you're a stalker and a creep and you need to leave her alone. But let me do a plot synopsis of this film for people at home who might not have seen it. So my favorite year, uh, they tell us early on, my favorite year, it, it was 1954. And I was like, oh, only a cis straight white man would be like, 1954, <laughs> the best year. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know. like basically the best year for straight white men was basically like every year in history. Pretty it, much. You know, we, we can generally find something that was going right for us somewhere, which really no other part of society can say. Yeah. But that cracks me up. Just like my favorite year, 1954. It was the best. And I was like, oh, I don't know about that. The cool stuff about this movie is um, kind of seeing old New York, right? It's not really old New York. It's shot in the 80s. But this nostalgic, beautiful look at what old New York would have looked like. Um, So we get a lot of that. We see 30 Rock. Uh, We meet the writer Benji Stone, who's really Benjamin Steinberg, right? Is that Steinberg? So Benji Stone, he has changed his name, feels a little guilty about it. He's a writer um, for a show that shoots at 30 Rock that's based on the real life Sid Caesar's show of shows. I forget what it's called in this. It's called... Uh, King it, Kaiser's. It's called King Kaiser's Comedy Cavalcade. There it is. King Kaiser's Comedy Cavalcade. He's not Sid Caesar at all. Um, and it's funny because <laughs> they kept like the column thing. And I'm like, King Kaiser doesn't work with columns, but whatever. It's fine. We'll keep going. Um, and Benji Stone is supposed to be, as Andrew had mentioned earlier, a mix of like Mel Brooks with maybe a little bit of Woody Allen, but a lot more Mel Brooks. So Benji's a writer on this variety show. And uh, there's only a couple of writers on it. Don't worry. They're mostly white men. Don't worry about it. And the one woman is responsible for relaying messages from another man. And I was like, oh, great. Um, but anyway, so it's a comedy show. 
that's not actually that funny. I don't think I thought anything that they wrote was funny, but I'm so I'm tearing it apart. I swear to God, this is a very sweet movie, <laughs> but I am going to tear it apart because I can't help it. Like I kept having these thoughts in my head. The the difficulty that I think both of us had watching it is that this is such a sweet, charming movie that has a lot of very wonderful moments in it, but it is a movie of a time. So there's a lot of things in it that hold up, but there's more than a few things in it that don't. And if you want to get nitpicky, it's much easier to lean into those things as opposed to the romance. Mm, But I think part of the fun is being nitpicky about it. And I'm also going to say, I think there's an extra layer that we're not talking about, which isn't just like the things that don't hold up. It's also not that funny. Like the comedy isn't that good. No, no. Right? So we're talking about like, this is the greatest show. It's so great. But the comedy isn't that. I kept writing down like, that's not funny. No. It's supposed to be funny. They're acting like it's funny. I'm like, that's not funny. So it's like the things that hold this movie up are not what you'd expect. Like, Last week we watched Preston Sturges. I don't think it's coming out in this order. I don't remember. But I watched Preston Sturges with Daniel. And that's so witty and quick and sharp. And the plot isn't that great. But what holds the movie up is this sharp wit. And I think what holds this movie up is not the comedy, even though it's you would think it would be because Mel Brooks produced it. And it's about, you know, this comedy show. That's not what's holding it up. What's holding it up is the nostalgia, the sweetness, the it's so it is so charming it's very it's got a lot of heart Mm -hmm. which is i love in all films i just want all my films to have heart in them so that's what i love about this Mm -hmm. but yeah there i mean i'm i'm nitpicking the things because they need to be said like they do need to be said okay so back to the plot synopsis alan swan is going to be the host of the week and this is kind of like saturday night live a little bit it's live sketch comedy so alan swan is literally based off of errol flynn Except where Errol Flynn is such a scumbag and creeper, they have made Alan Swan incredibly charming. Mm -hmm. Um, The similarities that the two have is that both are complete womanizers and both are just complete alcoholics as well. They have made Alan Swan larger than life, so delightful. Um, So he comes in completely plastered and uh, the head writer of the show is like, we're going to give up on this guy. He's wasted. We can't trust him. And Mark Lynn Baker, who plays Benji, says, no, no, no. This is my favorite movie actor. You've got to keep him in the show. I'll be responsible for him. And they're like, all right, you're responsible for him. But if he screws up, you're fired. Um, So... Benji's responsible for Alan Swan and keeping him sober and safe. There are some very cute moments in between. Alan Swan has a very loyal driver named Alfredo who takes care of him, who has created a tearaway suit, which is fantastic for when he's drunk and they need to get him bathed. So he has like this one person who really cares about him and who takes care of him. And uh, Benji and Alan start to get closer as the film goes on. And they both kind of, I feel like, Well, Benji doesn't really have a character arc, but Alan Swan does. So Alan Swan's character arc goes from essentially being this drunk who's not responsible to like in the end sticking with something and being relatively sober while he does it. Um, He sees something through in the end. Uh, He doesn't take the easy way out. He's because he says throughout, like, I want to be held accountable for my actions and then does the opposite of that. But he's charming and we like him. So uh, the other like part of this story, too. Oh, Mark Lynn Baker also has a crush on a girl that is like the secretary for one of the writers or the assistant to one of the writers. 
and he pesters her constantly does not leave her alone in an incredibly creepy way she's like please leave me alone he's like no she's like great I can get away from you I can go into the ladies bathroom and he's like no you can't I'm following you in there which like you know I don't really care about gender bathrooms but that was incredibly obnoxious so he's pestering her throughout eventually he gets her to go on the shittiest date of all time we'll get into it not because of what they did was shitty but his behavior on that date was such bullshit and I was like a man wrote this because a man thinks this is romantic it is not I'm so well again we'll get there I get very upset about this (laughs) um so uh he kind of gets this girl to fall for him too they have a nice kiss and the movie moves along a side plot that there is is that the Sid Caesar character, King Kaiser, that's his name in this, he's been spoofing this mafia guy, this head mafia guy that's supposed to be based on Al Capone. And I forget his name in this. It starts with an R. Do you remember it? Rojack. Rojack. Okay. Um, and he's like a 1940s gangsta kind of guy. Or I guess it would still be of the time. 19- he's got a zoot suit on. That's all you need to know. So he's been mocking this gangster guy. The gangster shows up and is like, don't you mock me anymore. And Sid Caesar's character, King Kaiser, is like, mm, I'm going to keep mocking you because I feel like it. He's also incredibly abusive to everybody on his staff. Um, that would be a problem today, I think. And so that's like the other side plot. So in the end, uh, Mark Lynn Baker takes Alan Swan on this journey. He meets Mark Lynn Baker's family. It's a whole big Jewish thing. Also, I should mention um, Alan Swan has a daughter who he doesn't see. She's 12 years old and he feels really badly about this and wants a relationship with her. But he doesn't really know how to do that. So he tries to go out to see his daughter, but doesn't end up speaking to her, just like views her from afar and comes home, home being New York City. And uh, the day of the show, before he's about to go on, he finds out that the show is live and he didn't understand that the show was live. And he gets scared and feels like he can't go on and he starts to drink. And Mark Lynn Baker is like, I believed in you and you are nothing and you suck. I'm pretty sure that's those are his exact words. <laughs> And then that really works. Alan Swan feels real bad about leaving the show. And uh, so he ends up showing back up at the show. Thank goodness, because he saves the day. Uh, because the the mafia men have come to the set. And they're beating up the King Kaiser character on camera. And everybody thinks it's a sketch, but it's not. He's getting the shit kicked out of him. And so Alan Swan sees what's going on. And he heroically swings in wearing a Three Musketeers costume. He swings in on a rope. And they all fight it out. And he saves the day. And everybody's applauding. And Mark Glenn Baker's character is like in a voiceover of like, this is how I like to remember him. Just like this. That's my favorite year. And also I should mention too, Alan Swan being a fake Errol Flynn character, that's a lot of like swashbuckling and action. And they imply that he does those kinds of things in real life too. Um, So yes, that is the film. I would really just love to get into the toxic Benji situation. Because that was my biggest detractor. Like again, I enjoyed the film, Mm -hmm. but the Benji situation really bothered me. The bad behavior, not listening to the no's. Um, and not even being like charming about it. Like when she's like, what do you want from me? And he's like, sex. And I'm like, you're trash, dude. I know he went to Yale. I know he's a good actor. I have no beef with him, but I think he feels too big. So him next to Peter O'Toole, who's like crushing it, who is perfect. To me, there's like this stark contrast. The character for me works because he very much fit into that vein of like that gawky, Jewish like wannabe writer like knows he's not suave and there was a certain level of innocence that probably came from the fact that Mark Lynn Baker had not really made his big foray on screen yet 
that worked for me. I don't know that I was necessarily comparing them all the time, but Mel Brooks has a quality where he can pull off things like that Mm -hmm. and still come across as likable or as... I, that's not the right word because Marklin Baker, it's not that he's not likable. It's that he's too. He comes I, off I creepy. Again, I don't think he's a bad actor, but he no. for me, he did not pull that off. But I, I hear what you're saying, too. For me, that date was fucked up. And I'm going to tell you why that was so fucked up to me. And I'm fine with the Chinese food. That's fantastic. Yes. Order Chinese food. And he says a line about Chinese food that stuck with me my whole childhood. Jews know two things, suffering and where to get great Chinese food. That struck me as a child because I remember being like. I do know where to get the Chinese food. Oh, my God. I fit into this stereotype. Oh, no. <laughs> that stuck with me. Back to the date. Okay, so what I hated about this date was in whoever wrote This Is Mind, the date isn't about him getting to know her. It's not about her at all. It's all about him and him showing off and him showing her, like, this is what I like about myself. But he he wants to teach her on this date. Mm-hmm. That's the grossest, most annoying thing ever. I'm going to go on a date and you're going to mansplain comedy to me who work on a comedy show and you're going to teach me how to be funny and I'm going to fall for you because of it? Like, ew, gross. No, no, no. I was not into that at all. I was sitting here going like, that's the worst date I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. If you try to, don't teach me on a date with you. Don't teach me comedy. So there was that. And then again, it was like, He's talking through the movie to show off how well he knows it. It's a, it's all about him. It's like not about connecting with her. He doesn't care about her. He She's the hot thing he wants to fuck or marry. Men have this very, when they find someone that they're physically attracted to, like that's all that matters. And then they feel like they can train the woman to like all of their things. And in that way, make them another version of themselves basically a reflection of themselves which is a horrible plan i just threw up in my mouth as you said that is that really true men want to make a mirror of themselves there is a part of male society that does it's just that that date the first time i watched it i went oh this is sweet ah and this was just like you don't care about her you don't want to know anything about her. You just want to be like, look how cool I am. Look at this thing I can do. Look, I'm so good. And I just, I really, I was like, oh, this is the nail on your coffin, dude. I'm out. But going back to the him yeah. of it all, Marklin Baker, I understand where you're coming from. And it does make sense why Marklin Baker eventually really made his stamp in sitcom. That's all I could think. I was like, oh, I get why you're a sitcom dude. And I've tried to find a copy of his production of Laughter on the 23rd Floor. Um, So Laughter on the 23rd Floor is a play by Neil Simon Simon that covers a lot of the same topic area. It's just sort of written from Neil Simon's perspective. Neil Simon, in addition to being a prolific playwright about the Jewish experience, he was also the basis for the Herb character. It was like 20 years after this movie, 20, 25 years, something like that. They got together and they did a live televised production of Laughter on the 23rd Floor, and Richard Benjamin came back to direct it. Who's the director of this? So Richard Benjamin directed this, and he also directed that, like, I think it's in 2001 or 2002? Early 2000s. Yeah, so, I mean, it... uh, And I would have been fascinated to see what he did with that role, having had the experience later on of, and, you know, growing as an actor and getting more comfortable on camera and sort of understanding what 
it means to be more of an on-camera actor. Because, again, he went to Yale School of Drama. Like, the dude's clearly talented. Absolutely. But I just, that was something that I just felt pulled out um, of the experience a little bit. Mm-hmm. And it I was trying to think of, like, well, who else could have done this? And I don't, you need someone who's so charming that you don't mind that they're doing these shitty things. <laughs> yeah. Or at least, like, what Usnavi did in, in The Heights was they made him so shy. Yep. Right. And so we can find our way in with that. Like, oh, he's just incredibly shy. We relate to that. So they mm-hmm. needed something that's just slightly more relatable for everybody. Because yes. I'm not a straight white Jewish man. I need my human way in. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that I fully had that. Um, and then also, I think they just with that character, they didn't fully round it out. Like there is no real character arc. So that's part of the problem too. there with like my Benji issue. I'm talking so much shit about this movie. I swear to God, it's not bad. And we're going to get to the good stuff too. But it was my beefs first. We're dealing with the beefs. Okay. But I was, I was having like, just, there was so much that I was like, oh my God, and this, and this, and this. But specifically, I think it was just the idea of watching this the first time and being so charmed by it and thinking things were like fine and cool. And then watching it this time and being like, oh my God, that's not okay. And not fine and not cool. Um, but yeah, I think that it's just they needed a character arc or something. Like he needed to have some sort of big shift as well. He does not change throughout the entire movie. Yeah, he's supposed to be like the straight man to Alan Swan, but then also funny sometimes. So it's like they never quite, quite figured that out. And that's fine. Again, this movie's still good without it. Mm-hmm. Although I will say to me, this movie feels like it could be a made for TV movie where if they didn't have Peter O'Toole in it, it wouldn't have been as good. Like Peter O'Toole elevates the mm-hmm. shit out of this, I think. Yeah. Because he's so he's so good in it. Um, that's the next thing on my list. <laughs> I wrote, it's Toxic Benji, and then it's Alan Swan elevates the piece. Yes. So you have Peter O'Toole. How fantastic is he in this role? There is nothing wrong with his performance. He is fully committed, and everything he does with it is amazing. And the way he even takes very small moments mm-hmm. and turns them into something special just shows you why Peter O'Toole was the movie star that he was. Um, there's a great scene in there where he's completely drunk so they basically just put him on a luggage cart and his hotel room is two stories so they literally have to like drag this luggage cart up the stairs and so there's this big thunk every time so he's on top of it and he hears the thunk and then every time he goes yeah so it's it's lovely he just he made it real he really did and not only did he make it real, he made it, I think, better. Because like I said earlier, Errol Flynn sucks. Dude sucks. Again, to find out why, please go listen to our Robin Hood episode. But dude was scum, right? Not likable, you know? And he had a temper. He was not cool. And so Peter O'Toole doing this is just, he's beyond likable and you mm-hmm. don't expect it. And it doesn't feel as creepy, I think, with the women because it's always consensual mm-hmm. and they're always coming onto him. So it yeah. doesn't feel like he's lecherous. It doesn't feel like he's, you know, just have sex with everybody and leave them. It feels yeah. like it's like different than that, you know? This is a very sex positive podcast. It's like if two people want to, you know, bone and they're both consenting adults, by all means, go ahead and do it. It's just we don't condone the way that Benji went about no. it. And I mean, real life Errol Flynn was having sex with underage women and has like very awful allegations against him. Whereas this character doesn't have that that vibe about him. Correct. There's there's not any of that. When he goes to to talk to his daughter mm-hmm. and he can't get out of the car and like the sadness on his face, he's so subtle with 
with those beautiful little moments, but then can pull off the really big swashbuckling, grandiose lines, complete fall down drunk. But it's it's funny and it feels real. He does all of that. He gives you all of it. And that's I mean, that's why he was nominated for an Oscar for this. But I, he did not win because it was the year of Gandhi and Ben Kingsley won, which makes yeah. 100% sense. As he should. And that was a movie that had a much more experienced director in oh. Richard Attenborough. Sir Richard Attenborough <laughs> versus first-time director Richard Benjamin. Yep. You know, let's let's chat about Richard Benjamin maybe a little then. We've sure. mentioned him um, mm-hmm. on the podcast. We've talked about him because people at home, he was in The Last of Sheila. One could argue that he was like the star of The Last of Sheila. Everybody's a star in that. But, you know, he he was an actor. Mm-hmm. Um, this We mentioned this was his first film that he directed. When he's an actor, he's famous for things like he was in the original Westworld. He was in Catch-22. Um, I mentioned The Last of Sheila. And I feel like his most famous movie that people know him from is a movie called Goodbye, Columbus. Mm-hmm. That's kind of like his big thing. Um, and then the movies that he directed where we had mentioned Laughter on the 23rd Floor, which yep. I have never seen because you mentioned it's probably I, hard to get a copy of. I can't of. Yeah. find it anywhere. If, if anyone's listening, just you know, find me on social media at Mr. Andrew Apple, A-P-P-E-L, <laughs> and I'll, 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 I'll do something nice for you. I'll draw you a picture. But he, he directs some sweet stuff. I mean, Racing with the Moon, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> Mermaids, which I, you know, it's yep. Mermaids, um, Milk Money, uh, my stepmother is an alien, which I totally saw as a kid. And the money pit. So like those are some he d- tends to do kind of comedies that are a little more endearing. Yeah. I think this is a great job for a first time director, don't oh, you? Yeah. A- absolutely. I mean, knowing where to put the camera and where to cut. If you can do that competently, like half the battle is done. The other half is casting, uh, which, you know, we've all ready gone into well and again i imagine how intimidating that must be because i feel so bad i never want to comment on anyone's acting performance really because i know how hard it is like Mm -hmm. i in my personal self i don't think i've ever given a performance on film that i am personally incredibly proud of right i am a stage actor i come from the world of stage and i feel so comfortable on a stage but that is hard to translate and Mm -hmm. i imagine in your very first big role opposite peter fucking o'toole you're going to be a little nervous. You might not know exactly what you're doing yet. So you're relying on muscle memory of things that you know will work. Mm-hmm. So I think like that's my insight of that. You know, I'm, I'm going to tell you a secret. Yeah. He made a shit ton of money doing Perfect <laughs> Strangers. So I think Good. he's, he's going to be fine. Right? Perfect yeah. Strangers is so fun. He and Bronson Pinchot are the ultimate odd couple in that show. And it's just a ton of fun to watch. You had mentioned something earlier. You came into this through the musical yes. that came out in 1992. Mm-hmm. I know the musical existed, but mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not super familiar with it. The only song I think I've ever heard was, um, so in the movie, there's that character, Alice, mm-hmm. who's the only female comedy writer in the group. And she's the one that's like the voice of Herb. So when Herb, who is not Neil Simon, but is Neil Simon whispers to her, she's the one that translates it to everybody. <laughs> so her part, I think, is beefed up in the musical because I know, I think Andrea Martin won a Tony for it or was nominated for a Tony I think for she it. was nominated alongside Tim Curry, who played the Alan yes. Swan role. But she had a song in that that mm-hmm. was about, like, they end up shutting the Sid Caesar character up. So that's the only piece of music I've heard from it. Or you do a song from it in your cabaret, actually, now that I think about it. Yes. yes. So one of the running themes in this movie is that Benji just adores the larger-than-life persona that is Alan Swan. And that's given a very sweet song in My Favorite Year, the musical, where he talks about 
how Uncle Morty would give him a nickel and say, you know, get out of here, go to the movies. And the first movie he saw was Defender of the Crown, which they reference. And I, coming more from the musical world, I had found that song looking for, you know, male pieces. And then I'm like, it's a movie? And so then, you know, I immediately go out and proceed to find the film. And I've had a very similar reaction to what you had, mm-hmm. where because I was younger and you know, I didn't quite understand some of the toxic masculinity well, aspects of it. We weren't looking it. at it that way back then. Yeah. It was like we didn't have that lens yet. And then what that did was, number one, made me realize the musical itself, there, there's a reason why it flopped. It does have <laughs> some very lovely songs in it, but it just unfortunately, and I think a, to a large degree because so much of it is based on Benji's character and because he doesn't necessarily grow throughout mm-hmm. it, you kind of lose a lot and have trouble following the plot line because you're supposed to be doing it through Benji's eyes. Um, also, and this is just a personal preference, I am not a big fan of the voice of the actor who played Benji on who the was it? recording. I don't know who it was. Um, I do know that he is no longer you know, pursuing a stage career, but he is teaching. So, you know, good for him. And also shout out to Aaron's and Flaherty who wrote that score. I just think yeah. that's so interesting. I, when I was looking it up, I was like, oh, I didn't realize it was them. They're yeah. like famous Broadway mm-hmm. people that you would totally know. Like Once everybody on knows. Island, Seussical. Um, and if you have not heard, they did this very small musical that never really went anywhere called The Glorious Ones, which was oh, about- Oh, I thought you were going to say Ragtime. No. I thought you were joking. I was no. like waiting for the buildup. No, like they did no. this small musical no one's ever heard of. <laughs> <laughs> it's only epic. No, it's called uh, The Glorious Ones. And it was about one of the first uh, Commedia dell'arte theater troops in Paris. And it's just this very sweet little musical. They also did Rocky the Musical. <laughs> there were some good songs in there. But okay. Uh, so that also ties into the fact that as the credits were rolling this time, I saw the name Adolph Green and I went, no way. So there's a famous uh, writing duo, Comden and Green. People at home, they wrote like every famous thing, every good golden age musical you can think of. So they wrote like Singing in the Rain. Uh, it's Always Fair Weather. They wrote Auntie Mame, which is maybe one of my favorites of all time. And so Adolph Green plays Leo in this. Yes. And uh, yeah, my young self would never have caught that. I, I would never have known that. So watching it this time, I just went, oh, no, really? That's you, Adolph Green? You're in this? That You don't think of a writer as being an actor in your movie. And you don't think of him without Comden. You don't think of just Green. No. Um, yeah. So they're just like fantastic. But he's in this. So shout out to that. I also want to talk about, let's see, I wrote down um, the real life parallel. So I want to make sure we hit them. I think we hit all of them, which is that a show of shows is this the King Kaiser's mm-hmm. whatever comedy cavalcade. Sid Caesar is King Kaiser. Errol Flynn is Alan Swan. And uh, Neil Simon is Herb. Uh, Woody Allen is not totally present, only slightly in the Woody Allen, Mel Brooksy character of Benji. So those are all the people. Sid Caesar, though, I have heard firsthand that he was not that personality. Good, because that personality is abusive and awful. Yes, he he was a much kinder person. Well, and I was wondering, where's Carl Reiner? Because Carl Reiner is not really represented in this either. And no. he's famous from that era and working with Mel Brooks in those days. No, he's not. But you can also see aspects 
of it. He did his own version of this in the Dick Van Dyke show because Alan Brady was also based on Sid Caesar. But like you'd think he would be in a character in this and he's not really. That was the smallest writer's room for a TV show in the like history. Four of them total writing the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. He was like, I was a freshman writer. And I'm like, oh, because they really meant freshman, sophomore, junior, senior. And there were four. Yep. Damn. Now that I think about it, Dick Van Dyke, they also only had a three-person writing room in addition to the Alan Brady character because it was Dick Van Dyke, Rosemary, and Maury Amsterdam were the only writers on the show. So maybe that's what it really was like back in the day. And there were really only four writers. (laughs) I just thought this was funny. I noticed it this time of like... Alan Swan and Benji Stone, A.S. and B.S. And I was like, oh, A to B. Like, you know, mm-hmm. they really are. Look at that. I feel like they're doing that on purpose. But yeah, do you want to just get into like the modern lens stuff of like what was not necessarily working in this? Sure. Um, so my first one was 1954. Not great for everyone. No. There's like so much white privilege in this film. Yes. There's no people of color that speak. I did notice that the audience was integrated. So I was like, that's cool. We have an integrated audience, but like only white people talk in this movie. And there's only two women that are allowed behind the scenes plus the costumer. So I guess three, which is a bummer. Yes. Um, <laughs> and then uh, the character of Rookie Karoka. That's a big bummer when you get to that. At least, and this is not me defending the character, but I will say it could have been a lot worse like breakfast at tiffany's worse it still is cringy yep there's this one part where like benji takes alan swan home to brooklyn because his mother wants him to come and she wants to meet alan swan and they're gonna have dinner and so obviously like the whole big jewish family gets together and they're super uncouth after her husband passed away she married a filipino boxer named rookie karoka and it's fine except he's kind of a stereotype and she's like making him work for her basically It's a little uncomfortable, you know, maybe it's because we don't really see the love between them. If we could see the loving relationship, the uncle calls him a shitty name that you're like, oh, don't say that, please. The one saving grace that I will say is that Lainey Kazan is never not wonderful in anything that she does. But this is the writing, not her. But if you knew nothing about Jewish people and you looked at this, like you would get a very stereotypical and generally incorrect approach to how these interactions would actually go. Yes, we do the big family dinners. Yes, we don't eat pork in general at these family dinners. But, you know, nobody shows up in a wedding dress. Nobody shows up in a wedding dress. Uncomfortable questions will totally be asked, but yes. they're usually like, when are you getting married and when are you have kids? Yes. Um, so, you know, that just certain things are I was like, ooh, I don't think we're all like that. Whatever. So, yeah. And I do love that her big whole thing. So she's totally lovely to Alan Swan, actually. I don't think she's very embarrassing. No. Um, it's the relatives that are embarrassing, like yes. Uncle Morty and Aunt Sadie. Uh But she says at one point she does look at him and she's like, you know what you need? You need children. You need a wife. Like she does do that. And I was like, oh, I'm shocked. An old school Jewish mother telling you you need to get married and have kids. Who's surprised by this? So, yeah. Um, What else was there? Um, This is the thing right here, too. So, 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 so much sexual harassment. Yes. It's disgusting. Yes. The constant sexual harassment of the women in this film Mm -hmm. hurts. It just (laughs) hurts. Yeah, it's a lot. It's constant, like 
ass grabbing, wolf whistles, like the men on the program hitting on all the actresses that are there. And then the abusive boss on top of that. So not only is the boss sexually harassing everybody, he's also verbally abusing, sometimes hitting people and then being like, I'll get you a gift. I'll get you a gift. It's okay. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. It's, no. it's not okay. Um, so I'm glad Sid Caesar was really not like that at all. That's good to know. But yeah, King Kaiser was abusive. He was an ass. He was, ass. He yeah. was an abusive ass he, who he, he literally put women in boxes just so you could see their legs. Yes. So they did not have a face. They were just legs inside of a box. Yes, it was rough, y'all. At least we get to see her face later. We think. We think it could be a different actress, and we'll never know. We will never know. But yeah, it's pretty gross. So that that's the modern lens. Did you want to add anything? Was there anything else that you were like, oh, gross? The only thing that really stood out to me was if you were to look at all of the encounters that Alan Swan has and recognize that most of them are above board, Benji creates the distraction so that he can leave with the woman who's either married to or on a date with um, a, a large Italian man who may or may not be in the mafia. I was going to say an overweight bald man, but <laughs> yes, he was clearly of a stereotypical look that is commonly associated with the New Jersey Italian mafia. Yeah, that did feel gross and creepy. I agree with you. And they turned it into a, a joke because the exact verbiage was somebody stole my gal. And then the band begins to play the song. Somebody stole my gal. That's yeah. a great button to that scene. Also, the soundtrack to this was great. And you could never get that soundtrack today. Like the amount of money it would cost Richard Benjamin on the DVD uh, commentary track that he does. You know, uh -huh. he, he points out just like, there's a reason why you never see a movie opening up to an original master recording of Nat King Cole singing Stardust because yeah. there are so many hands that need to be paid. You have to pay the Carmichael uh, estate and Nat King Cole's mm -hmm. estate, not to mention the record label who owns the masters. It's just like you cannot do that yeah. anymore. It really sets the stage mm -hmm. opening with Stardust and Nat King Cole singing it because the way the movie opens is we're kind of seeing the blueprints of a, like of something we're not totally sure what we're seeing. And then mm -hmm. we kind of recognize like, oh, that might be a bridge. And it reveals itself as the New York skyline. So you've got Stardust, which is, by the way, like ubiquitous in the 40s and 50s. That's mm -hmm. like the pop song sung by Nat King Cole. It's just it sets the tone so beautifully. And I also love that they kind of introduce New York to you first. Like they show you the New York of the olden days, right? Mm -hmm. Like you see the marquee with seven brides for seven brothers on it. And yeah all the people in period costume and those are real people that's not cgi mm -hmm. you know like i love that vibe that feel it's a really good introduction and then just hearing that music i mean how high the moon like all these gorgeous songs mm -hmm. orchestrally done yes i loved it so yeah thanks for bringing that up one other thing i just thought of too the other creepy thing was the advice i remember writing down while watching it like Alan Swan is giving Mark Lynn Baker advice about like how to get women. Mm -hmm. And he's like, you have to be mysterious and withholding. <laughs> Just like all this crazy shit that I was like, please don't take advice from this man. Please, for the love of God, don't do this. <laughs> His advice works if you look like Alan Swan. If you look like Peter O'Toole. Well, and also he like comes with the mystique of being like, 
a famous swashbuckling hero. So like the women that do want to sleep with him don't really want him. It's the Gilda syndrome. It's like they go to bed with Gilda and wake up with me, Rita Hayworth. So it's kind of that idea of like, you know, a lot of women are throwing themselves at him in this because of what he represents as a movie star. And he has a freaking character arc. So he talks about that. He's like, I myself am kind of lost. My real name is Clarence. I don't totally have a persona of my own because the studio invented a persona and I don't know what's really me and what's my acting persona anymore. Um, and I love I loved the complexity of that. That's great. But yeah, that conversation did strike me as like, oh, please don't follow that advice. Oh, no, no, no. Also, please just don't like only want to have sex with women. They're also people. Just so you all know at home, women are I don't know if you know this, but women are like people <laughs> with like thoughts and brains and like that's pretty great. You should try to get to like know them instead yes. of just viewing them as objects to like maybe fuck. Yes. I don't know. So Peter O'Toole, let's talk about him a little bit. Peter O'Toole, born in 1932. He died in 2013. He's very famously in Lawrence of Arabia. That's like his most famous movie and his film debut. So Peter O'Toole is an actor who started on the stage and like studied at RADA and like worked at the Old Vic. But he's an actor who came from the stage but transitioned really well to screen. Mm -hmm. So I just think it's so interesting of like Mark Lynn Baker is also a huge stage actor that's transitioning to screen. And it's like, this is his first role. And Peter O'Toole's is like Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting kind of through line. But uh, Peter O'Toole, Lawrence of Arabia, uh, The Lion in Winter and Beckett. Those are both huge roles of his. The Stuntman. He was a voice in Ratatouille. I believe he played the critic, Antonico. Am I correct? Yep. Yeah. Um, he was in How to Steal a Million with Audrey Hepburn. He was in the musical remake of Goodbye, Mr. Chips, which just sounds so bad to me. Like, I'm sure it's probably fine, but that sounds like such a bad idea. Um, and he was in the um, the Woody Allen movie, What's New Pussycat? Uh, I mentioned he attended RADA. He did a lot of stage work, and stage work was super important to him. Like, for example, when he was offered certain film roles right after he struck it big, he was like, no, it's more important to me to act, like, at Stratford-upon-Avon. That's been my, like, life dream, and I'm going to do that instead. Um, so I appreciate that about him. And he also was the very first Hamlet at the National Theater. Oh. Which I He was directed by Laurence Olivier. How cool is that? I did not know that. Yeah. He went to school with Albert Finney and Brian Bedford, which my mom will appreciate that because when I was growing up, uh, we used to go to not Stratford on Avon in England, but Stratford on fake Avon in Canada. We mm -hmm. went every summer of my life when I was a child and I've seen Brian Bedford perform several times and we love him and it's great. So that tickled me and my mom will like that. There were, <laughs> unfortunately, there are rumors of him being mentally cruel and harsh when drinking towards his one, towards one of his wives and I go, oh, fuck. But I hope he got over that and wasn't a monster. He played rugby. Um, he was misdiagnosed for stomach cancer in 1976 and almost died. And the reason he was misdiagnosed was because so he had stomach cancer, but they thought he had ulcers from drinking because he was such an alcoholic. Mm. So they thought it was a drinking issue, but it was actually stomach cancer. But he ended up like getting the help he needed. He survived. But eventually when he passes away, it's because of stomach cancer in 2013. And then he also <laughs> has been nominated for an Oscar eight times and never won. And he jokingly called himself like the biggest loser about it. <laughs> so, yeah, I think how many does Glenn Close have? Because I was like, ooh, she's been nominated so many times. Um, I want to say eight. What? So she, they might be tied for the most. They're like the Susan Lucci's of the Oscars. N no one is Susan Lucci. 20 years. That is a singular experience in a very, very niche world. While you're looking that up, I'm going to talk about Mark Baker really quick. People at home, you know him from Perfect Strangers. You also may know him from Full House if you watch Full House the way that I did growing up. He was Rebecca Donaldson's cousin. 
uh, in that episode where they have the twins contest. I'm sure you all at home totally know what I'm talking about. Um, he's also in Noises Off and he does um, some Broadway stuff too. He's in Laughter on the 23rd Floor, the Neil Simon play we mentioned. He was in the revival of A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, A Flea in Her Ear, and uh, another one that I didn't write down because oh, it was A Year with Frog and Toad. I just remembered it. I didn't even need to write it down. Ha! The way he kind of got his start in general. So in the 70s, he got his MFA from the Yale School of Drama. Slacker. And he also went to undergrad there. So like, good for you, dude. But he came up with uh, Louis Black. He did a two-man comedy show with Louis Black in the oh. 80s. And then just the other people in this, Jessica Harper plays Casey Downing. She was in Suspiria and Minority Report. Uh, Joseph Bologna. <laughs> I don't even know. Is it Bologna, really? I, I think that's what, okay. how you would Because it looks like yes. Joseph Bologna, but I think it's Bologna. Yes. Um, he plays King Kaiser, and we all know him, at least I do, from Big Daddy. He plays Sonny Koufax's dad, Lenny Koufax. Um, he's also in a movie called Tango Shalom, which uh, Lenny Kazan <laughs> is in. And I know him mainly from The Nanny, if we're being 100% honest. Bill Macy plays Cy Benson. He was on Maud. And uh, Lainey Kazan, you all at home will know her from my big fat Greek wedding. She plays the mom in that. But she's also just like a character actress that's in everything. Also, just to clarify, Bill Macy is not William H. Macy. Thank you for clarifying. Yes, William H. Macy and Bill Macy are two very different people. Yes. Thank you for clarifying. Also, check it out. Eight Oscars. She's nominated for eight Oscars, so they're tied. Yep. But I I still believe she's going to win one day. I think Glenn Close is fantastic. Um, and Salvo gets a shout out too. She played Alice and she's in the film Arthur. I legit for what I really did think it was Andrea Martin for a minute though. Mm -hmm. It took me a minute. Andrea Martin is so perfect for that role. Yes. Um, and she, again, she plays it in the musical and Lainey Kazan reprises her role in the musical. Mm -hmm. And I just want to also shout out that Lainey Kazan was like a super sexy woman in the seventies. So for all of a sudden for it to be 82 and they're like, you're a mother now, Lainey Kazan, and you'll be a mother forever. At least she's working. True. I heard that Peter O'Toole did a lot of his own stunts. I heard that from IMDb, so who knows if it's... Oh, the Richard Benjamin, I guess, said it on the, the DVD yeah. commentary. And it came from a place of the Errol Flynn's of the world. They insisted on doing as many of their own stunts as possible because, especially on film, when it was TV, you could get away with it a little bit more. Like, th there are entire videos of like when you can clearly tell that Patrick Stewart's stunt double is <laughs> standing in for him. But on film, you can tell when it's a stunt double for the most yes, part. Yes, like Peter O'Toole with the horse, right? Yep. The very first two shots of it are very clearly not Peter O'Toole. But then when it is Peter O'Toole, you're like, oh my God, he's really riding that horse exactly. and you get excited. <laughs> yeah. And I love that they really made an effort to blatantly make sure that we knew that it was Errol Flynn. Like the movies that they show us of Alan Swan, they show us like Alan Swan's old films. And it's so obviously like, okay, that's like Captain Blood. Mm -hmm. It's like shot for shot, The Adventures of Robin Hood. Like it looks exactly like it. the costumes, the staircase, fake Olivia de Havilland. Like it looks <laughs> just like it. And I feel like they, that was one of the things I was like noticing cute little things. But when he's like, I should have been with Victoria, she was the one. And I was like, is, is that supposed to be Olivia de Havilland? Because they were, Errol oh. Flynn and Olivia de Havilland were in love with each other, but never totally consummated it because he was married and she didn't want to. But she was like, yeah, we really, really cared for each other. Mm -hmm. So there, there are parts of me that I'm like, oh, I wonder if the Victoria is supposed to be Olivia. Oh, Mel Brooks did executive produce this too. Actually, he went on to say he was intentionally as hands off with this as possible because he wanted to see the movie made, but he knew that if he put his stamp on it and if his name was on it it couldn't be the movie that he felt it needed to be and i was actually 
surprised because I was falsely under the impression that this movie came after uh, Solar Babies because that was the movie that really turned Mel Brooks into a producer. Someone who worked for him said, I have this great idea for a movie and pitches it. And it's it's basically like Star Wars meets Starlight Express in a dystopia. And they're like, yeah, and we can shoot it overseas and it'll cost $5 million. And Mel Brooks was like, oh, well, I don't need to go to a studio for $5 million. I can just go to the bank. Well, it was more than $5 million. Never put your own money in the show. Exactly. So it's like he mortgages his house, his cars, like his entire financial future is now staked on the success of this movie. And his final success in it was that he was able to get the whole thing to break even. And it was after that that he realized what it actually meant to be a producer. So nominally, he is a producer on this Nominally, he was a producer on all of his movies prior, but Solar Babies was the movie where he was like, okay, I have to watch out for the bottom line. I guess Richard Benjamin after, uh, and who again, who knows if this is true? This is just on IMDb, so we don't know for sure, but I want it to be true. Um, Richard Benjamin offered the role of Alan Swan to Peter O'Toole right after he saw this movie, The Stuntman, which Peter O'Toole ends up getting like Oscar nominated for. Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, I want you to be in my film and play this role. And he goes back and tells Mel Brooks, like, oh, my God, I got Peter O'Toole. And Mel Brooks is like, great. Do you know how much that's going to cost? Like, <laughs> you just cost us a fortune. Thanks a lot. Um, so I like that story. Also, I wonder, too, if maybe... He chose Richard Benjamin or wanted him for this because I was reading that Richard Benjamin was a page at 30 Rock. So he's also a part of this environment and gets it and is also like a cis straight white Mm -hmm. Jewish male. So I wonder if there's like that bond of it, too, of like you'll get this because you worked in this environment, too. MGM was like, why the hell are we letting this guy direct a movie? He's got no experience. And Mel Brooks response was, well, we think he's sane. I do want to also just mention like. All the fun little moments that were in this. Um, like there's a when the gangster comes into Sid Caesar's office, who's not Sid Caesar, I keep saying that, King Kaiser. When he goes into his office and he had just done his rehearsal for the day, um, but he's dressed in the zoot suit. The actor is the King Kaiser actor. And so the mafia guy comes in dressed the same way and they sit on the couch together and Sid Caesar's studying him and copying him. So they're smoking their cigar together. And it's like the mirror thing. It's like the Groucho Harpo mirror thing. And it's cute and it's funny and it's fun. That part was very funny. That was like cute funny. There's a lot of like dad jokes and penis jokes in this film. You know what I mean? Like so many penis jokes in this film. Yes. The only time they ever work too is when Alan Swan makes them. He's the only one that pulls off the penis joke. It was a great way to set up what was my favorite scene, which was the big finale where everyone's just beating the crap out of each other on live television and Alan Swan literally swoops in and saves the day. They set up the joke where it's like, this guy's supposed to crash in because it's like he parked on the second floor. There was no parking. He crashes in, right? Mm -hmm. So that joke doesn't happen. And all we see is fighting and the audience just starts cracking up. And I'm like, that's not funny. (laughs) I don't know. I I was like, they're just fighting with no excuse, with no. The bar was a lot lower in the 1950s. (laughs) Well, and, and I mean, I know that sounds ridiculous, but like if you go back and watch Man on the Moon, like, if you do not understand what comedy was prior to Andy Kaufman, 
you just look at what he does and it seems relatively tame. But no one had done that before. Lucy's funny. I love Lucy's funny. There were shows that were funny. I'm just saying, like, they're telling us it's funny rather than making it funny. Like, they're showing us that the audience is laughing and they're like, isn't this funny? I'm like, no, it's not funny at all. That's not even, you're not even trying. They're just, they're just fighting. Thank God Alan Swan swoops in and saves the day. He just saved your whole sketch. You're all so damn lucky that that just happened. Because that becomes the joke of yeah. like, oh no, there's chaos and swimming and we can't control it and there's fighting. Who's going to save the day? Alan Swan. Like, so that turned it into something. Otherwise, you're just sitting there going like, they're fighting on a set. Okay. But it's so real. But I loved the cigar moment. I loved the tearaway suit. I loved it. I just thought that was great. I loved everything Peter O'Toole does in this. He's just so good in this. But when um, Mark Lynn Baker and I forget her, the actress's name, Casey, in this film, um, when they have their movie kiss, like it starts off as we see Alan Swan's film and the film is ending and they go in for their movie kiss and they pan out and then we see that Mark Lynn Baker and um, Casey are kissing. I was like, oh, that's really, that's cute. Yeah. I think that's very cute. I don't get why she would ever kiss him, but it was a cute moment. I think they thought persistence was romantic, maybe. But yeah, it's, I just, I think it's, he just skeeved me out so bad. And then he gets rewarded for it. And you're like, no. Another moment I loved is that there's a pre-Princess Bride as you wish in here. So before that meant anything to the general public, we have an as you wish. And I was like, oh, yes. So I love that. And then also I did um, just want to comment on the fact that Sai is the grossest bagel order I have ever heard in my entire life. He orders a bagel with butter, schmear, cream cheese, and what? And jelly? Yeah. Ew. Who does that? It's not the weirdest thing I've ever <laughs> so heard. So gross. The creaminess and the sweetness, I've seen it play well together. With butter and schmear and cream judge. cheese. I don't judge. I judged him hard. I said, your taste buds are wrong. He had six sugars in his coffee. Yes. In that small, small coffee. Yes. If it was an everything bagel. That would at least be better. You just need flavor. I don't know. I was like, where are the locks? What's going on here? I don't believe it. But six sugars. Yeah. That's a lot of sugars. It's a lot of sugar. I have a sweet tooth and I think that's too many sugar. Oh, and one other thing I really loved was just seeing Central Park yeah. in the morning. Like it was just beautiful. That was a beautiful shot. And then them riding on the horse in Central Park. Oh, I loved all of that stuff. He's having this heart to heart with Benji and it's beautiful. And he's like, I just want to be held accountable for my actions. And then immediately he's like, let's go steal that horse. And I'm like, no, you don't want to be held accountable. <laughs> that was funny. But then the last line of the film is like with Alan Swan, you forgive a lot, yep. you know, and they make it make sense. Mm -hmm. I also, I can't help but add this too. I love that the thing that is like the character arc for Alan that like changes his mind is how Mark Lynn Baker feels about him mm -hmm. and how Alfredo feels about him and yes. like the show. And I was like, wait, hold the phone. This is just a stupid show. So like your family, your kids, they're not changing you. Mm -hmm. But like this dumbass show is because it's the world of this movie and that has to be the trigger. You know what I mean? That is my favorite scene. And you can tell that that is the first time in Alan Swan's entire adult life that anyone has stood up to him and called him on his shit. So you're saying it's not the fact that it's the show. It's just the calling out of his yes. shit. Yes. I like that better. One of the reasons why he says he wants to be held accountable for his actions is because at the core of it, every character in every movie, but this one especially, they're just looking for meaning in this crazy world. And eventually he does end up finding it through his relationship with Tess. Mm -hmm. But Benji, his meaning for so many years was his relationship with Alan Swan, the movie star up on the screen. And to then 
have that person in come into his life and be there and to not be that person it's devastating and benji clearly felt that the meaning that he could bring in the world was to entertain people so he wanted alan swan to be part of his meaning and that's why he was willing to stand up to him in that moment because what else was left for him to do? Well, I think also he saw the underbelly of Alan Swan and Alan Swan isn't a jerk, you know? So the fact that it's like, he's not a jerk, he just never really grew up. He never was held accountable. I can buy this. Cause I think that it's not Alan Swan's responsibility to be that person. I think he's allowed to be whoever he wants to be. Like he doesn't have to fit into this, this trope. Like that's, that's Benji's brain thinking of him. That's not Alan's real responsibility. I like the idea of him trying to find who he really is. Benji Stone can be Benjamin, whatever his Jewish name was, Steinberg, and and Benji Stone. You know, like both things can be true. Both things can be real. Oh, and I also was noticing with the costumes, the juxtaposition too of like, they really were telling us who Alan is and who Benji is. With like, Benji is a jalab. His tie is always loose. Uh, You know, he needs to rent the jacket at the club, whereas Alan Swan is impeccable. His tie is perfect. And I was like, ah, they're showing us through costuming the differences between these two gentlemen. I love it. But Benji's clothes are not tear away. No, they are not. I mean, we've covered pretty much every moment in the movie at this point, but also... At the same time, I would just like to use this opportunity to repeat the line, Jewish people know two things, suffering and where to find great Chinese food. I hate to say that it's true, but I think it might be true. I know where to find good Chinese food, do you? Absolutely. Damn it. It's true. It's because we have to know because of Christmas, you know? As much as the traditional Eastern European dishes, you know, whether it be matzo balls or kreplach or pickled herring for some people, whatever it is. There is just something about the memories that we have associated with Chinese food. But also, Jews do know more than just those two <laughs> We do. It's true. But I, I did. That struck me as a child of like, because even in the Midwest, when there's no good Chinese food, I knew where the good Chinese food was. My family did. But yeah, going back to what you said earlier about all of the penis lines when Alan Swan is in the women's bathroom and he says... It's the line about like, this is for ladies only. You don't see it, but you hear him unzip his pants and he says, well, so is this. But every once in a while, you still need to get it wet. It's just a lot of penis jokes, which is how you know a man wrote it. The, I wrote I wrote four quotes down uh, when the mom calls him Swanee and he goes, ma, he's an actor, not a river. And I was like, great line. But I loved all the lines that were like about the movie star stuff. So it was like, that was a movie. This is real life. And then Peter O'Toole goes, what's the difference? So I love all the larger than life lines like that. Um, And then the line about actors, obviously, I loved where they go. Well, of course he's beneath us. He's an actor. (laughs) I loved that (laughs) because they're referencing that like Peter O'Toole is dangling from a Mm -hmm. damn building. That that was actually a really weird moment for me because it was something I never noticed before. But there was something weird with the coloring that happened on my tv too you could tell that like it was in post-production where they like did some processes to it when they revitalized it for a blu-ray copy but there's like a halo around benji and alan when they're looking over the ledge yeah 
But at the same time, the green screen work where (laughs) Alan is hanging over New York City is spot on. That was fantastic. It really was. It's so funny because I thought that was maybe just my TV. Um, My final quote that I did mark down is maybe the best one to end on for the quotes. I'm not an actor. I'm a movie star. And I love that line. I just think that's a great line. It's so true, though. And it's so great that Peter O'Toole really was like a legit actor. But yeah, I'm not an actor. I'm a movie star. It's classic. It's classic. The self-awareness there was just so good. So we are now moving on to the double feature portion of this program. Um, If you liked this movie, what should you watch it with? Well, I'm so glad you asked. I feel like Noises Off would be a solid thing to watch with this. Mark Lynn Baker's in that too. It's like behind the stage, things are going awry. Ah, um, So I feel like that would be good. The producers I wrote down. Hail Caesar. Weirdly enough, I feel like Big would be a good movie to watch with this. Probably because it was also turned into a musical. <laughs> that is true. Um, Just for like the vibe of it a little bit. Yep. It's got that kind of vibe. It's Always Fair Weather, a Compton and Green musical, also behind the scenes of a variety show. If you can get a hold of it, Laughter on the 23rd Floor, let us know. I do get some Neil Simon vibes from this, like some Brighton Beach memoir vibes. Mm -hmm. One of the movies that I was associating this with was Neil Simon's The Goodbye Girl. But obviously we're talking about the Richard Dreyfuss version, not the Jeff Daniels version. That they made for TV, right? Which was directed by Richard Benjamin. Was it really? It was, yes. Oh, I did not watch it. Why mess with perfection? But Richard Dreyfuss is amazing. In the goodbye but just girl. a reminder, Richard Dreyfus does have some Me Too stuff, so just keep that in mind. Just hashtag Me Too. So yes, watch it, but also know that he's got some allegations. I wrote down Arthur and then Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid as well, because I feel like that's a great example of taking on a different genre, but like having fun with it. Um, and then I, I've never seen Get Him to the Greek, but I feel like this is Get Him to the Greek would be the modern day version of this film. Yeah, it's it's pretty similar. And I, I think the fact that Russell Brand played Arthur in the remake is very telling uh, with Get Him to the Greek. But it's like you need to be prepared for a lot of sophomoric humor. There is a very, I'm not going to spoil it, but there is a very awkward sexual encounter at the end of the movie so maybe don't watch it maybe just know it's a similar plot enjoy forgetting sarah marshall and you're fine do you have any other movies that you would recommend the only other one i would recommend that's in a similar vein but i'm guessing anyone who's seen this movie has also already seen singing in the rain but i'm never yeah not going to recommend singing in the rain we're gonna do singing in the rain this season later on love it yeah, it's it's one of it is the best movie musical of all time. And yes. it's about movies and yep. making movies and mm-hmm. and it's and and agree. There you yeah. go. <laughs> um so I cut you off. You didn't get to say it. Ha, I'm the smart I'm the smart one now. You're the host. <laughs> I humbly well, submit to your will. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show, Andrew. It was so lovely to have you. Thank you so much for having me. This was delightful. And everybody at home will see you next time on Talk Classic to Me. You have been listening to Talk Classic to Me with Sarah Greenfield. That's me. My guest this week was Andrew Apple. They will be featured on our Instagram page. If you enjoyed our show, please introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe and maybe even find us on anchor.fm and become a contributing member. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Talk Classic to Me for some awesome content and to find out what's coming up next. Thanks for listening.